0: It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster Talk is supported
1: by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. If you haven't heard part one of this interview, I'd strongly encourage you to do so prior to listening to part two. We're covering The Shaver Mystery and how it was built from extant lore about a hollow earth and how Richard Shaver and Ray Palmer used those elements to build what would become a foundational framework for a lot of very weird stuff indeed. Ray Palmer began publishing The Shaver Mysteries in 1945, and they told a wild tale of giant people, fawn girls, evil robots, ancient astronauts, advanced technology, psychic influence, and much more. As editor of Amazing Stories, Palmer was taking the science fiction magazine into space opera and fantasy territory, and it split a young, passionate readership into factions. Eventually, Palmer would leave amazing stories and venture into a new publication, one that would help consolidate and define an entire new field of study, flying saucers and ufology. Up next, part two of The Shaver Mystery. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. In this episode, we're going to continue our look into the curious narrative created by Richard Shaver and Ray Palmer and its impact on culture. I'm tempted to say American culture, but honestly, this got bigger than that, as you'll hear in the interview. Palmer was an early and prominent member of science fiction fandom. His interest even predates the use of the phrase science fiction, He'd been involved when Hugo Gernsback was encouraging everyone to call it fiction, and abbreviating that as STF, instead of the more widely known term sci-fi, which is abbreviated as SF. Fans have been arguing about which term to use for the field since the 1930s. In 2009, when the television network The Sci-Fi Channel, which was spelled S-C-I-F-I, changed it to sci-fi, spelled S-Y-F-Y, it rekindled this argument yet again about what the name should be for this field of literature. That the selection of what name to call a group with common interests would be the kind of wedge that could split people into factions should not be surprising to listeners. In a world where people routinely split into factions around what TV shows they like to watch within this genre, or split into groups around fictional characters such as Team Cap or Team Stark... Or a Team Edward versus Team Jacob, or a Team Jar Jar versus Team Annie. Anyway, the point is, people who have lots of reasons to join together can find plenty of reasons to split apart. Whatever you want to call it, fandom at this time was in its infancy. The word fan is a diminutized version of fanatic. When you're a fan of something, you may find yourself quite passionate about stuff that you're really. Not in a position to have control over. Your joys and disappointments become rallying points for you and others like you. Fans of science fiction quickly connected via mailing lists, homebrew newsletters, local clubs, and of course through the letters pages of their favorite magazines. Insider terminology was developed which could be used to identify other fans. For example, a collection of fans could be called a fin, similar to how the plural version of man is men. This linguistic development is still ongoing. Terms like fanfic, a fan-written fiction that occurs within the setting of some popular intellectual property. Or shipping, when someone fervently wishes that particular characters would form strong romantic relationships. Or slashfic, which describes non-canonical fanfic involving characters having sexual, often homosexual, liaisons. Despite the many reasons fans might be united by their common interests, these early fans almost immediately factionalized around politics, ideas around the direction of the field, over capitalism versus socialism, and even over a variety of made-up religions. Sorry, Flying Spaghetti Monster and Reverend Bob Dobbs, your biting satirical take on religion is not new. I'll put a link in the show notes to a site called fancyclopedia.org, which is just full of deep esoteric history around science fiction fandom. It's a fascinating resource if you want to see how we got to now. And as Jerry and Jeb describe, the internet culture on these fan topics is merely the electronic version of a much longer pen and paper tradition. We talked a little bit in part one about how Richard Shaver had been struggling with mental illness and how Ray Palmer took his story of detrimental robots and integrated robots the Darrow and Tarot, and expanded on it, and then framed it as both real and reminiscent of a pre-existing body of lore with which many readers would have already been familiar. He was blurring the lines between fact and fiction, and did not give a fig about it. This delighted some readers and infuriated others, and I've included a brief clip from The Long John Nebel Show, which includes audio of Ray Palmer, Richard Shaver, and of course Long John, talking about this topic. When you hear the show turn into a sort of old-timey recording, that's me playing the clip, which I forgot to introduce. A link to the full episode of Long John Nebel's Party Line will be in the show notes. A couple of words come up in this interview that are not very common, so I'm going to go ahead and define them here, just in case you aren't familiar with them. The first one is shibboleth, a word or saying used by adherents of a party or sect or belief and usually regarded by others as empty of real meaning. These are different from jargon, which are specialized terms with precise meaning for a technical profession. I like the word because of the story behind it. It was a term used in the Bible where there was this common word shibboleth and it became a password to distinguish between members of one tribe from possible imposters from another tribe who couldn't pronounce the sh sound because it wasn't part of their native tongue. The other word I wanted to define is reification. To consider or represent something that's abstract as material or concrete. To give definite or concrete form to a concept or idea. This term, reification, is about making something like an idea into a more concrete form... But the word also has multiple meanings in various fields. For example, there's a logical fallacy where you would argue against an idea as though it were a real thing, and that's considered to be a reification fallacy. And in information technology, reification is when you fully define a data model so that you've got a complete functional virtual model of a real thing. Amusingly to me, I had to look this up myself despite the fact that I do that very kind of work all the time without ever using that term. So I'm not sure who in the IT world uses the word reification, but I know that everybody in software development is doing it during the process of making software. We also briefly discussed in this interview the contactee UFO movement. Early UFO history includes a variety of people who came forward to say they'd been contacted by intelligent humanoids from outer space. Now, this is quite different from the abductees who occur later. Um, the abductees are taken against their will. The contactees are mostly happily contacted by these intelligences. These include people like George Van Tassel, who also started a large UFO convention in the desert at Giant Rock. There's George Adamski, who was another contactee, who was also previously involved in Theosophy and ran a hamburger stand. And and I'm not being trite. He really did run a hamburger stand and would tell customers all about his UFO experiences in addition to writing books about his work with the aliens and being interviewed, etc. We've also talked about Woody Derenberger before. Who's probably most well known for his meeting with Indrid Cold as depicted in the movie The Mothman Prophecies? I've said it before, but if your only knowledge of Indrid Cold's from the movie, you should take the time to either read The Mothman Prophecies or read Woody's own book about his meeting. Or, you know what? You can listen to an interview with Derenberger himself talking about meeting Indrid. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you've ever been frightened by the movie version or had trouble sleeping because of it, I think hearing Woody's own story will probably allay your worries. And if you do find yourself spooked by the movie version, you can thank Rich Haddam, who has appeared on Monster Talk and who kindly bought me some very nice cocktails in real life. I thank you a lot, Richard. I owe you a couple of rounds. Man, I need to get to L.A. and have some kind of Monster Talk meetup sometime. Okay. Finally... While the core material of the Shaver mystery comes from Richard Shaver, as we discussed in part one of the show, Ray Palmer expanded the text considerably and was probably responsible for much of the Theosophical, Atlantean, Lemurian, and other referential material that ties the Shaver stories to other works around the Hollow Earth, Lost Civilizations, and ultimately to ancient alien lore that already existed prior to the 1940s. We read a lot of material to prepare for this show, but the biography of Palmer called The Man from Mars, Ray Palmer's Amazing Pulp Journey by Fred Natus was particularly helpful. A few points that we may not have made in this interview but are worth mentioning because they give some insight into Palmer's views. First, Raymond A. Palmer used his initials as a nickname. People called him Rap. When he had a son, he named him Raymond B. Palmer. It's difficult to get a feel for how seriously Rap approached all this stuff. He definitely played with reality far more than just in The Shaver Mysteries. After a childhood injury, he had spent years in forced traction and reduced mobility around curing his spinal damage. Reading was his escape, and he was a voracious reader and highly imaginative. He never had a college education, and it seems he resented the kind of language common to scientific fiction, later sci-fi, and the technical jargon common to his competitor magazine Astounding, which was edited by John W. Campbell. Palmer had a mischievous, prankish nature. He frequently used pseudonyms to pin his columns and stories, and then would proceed to berate in the editorial page this fictional author who was himself. His work with Shaver led to a blurring of the lines between fantasy and the cult. Madame Blavatsky had done something similar when she claimed that Bulwer-Lighton's The Coming Race book was actually based on real history, but Shaver really mainstreamed it to the American Pulp magazine public. When Palmer promoted Kenneth Arnold in 1947, he had set himself on a clear course to weird sh**ology. We talked about this a bit in the interview, but later in life, Palmer promoted some writers who were clearly anti-Semitic. While he vigorously denied that he himself held such views, Promoting the writing of Nazi sympathizers is a poor way to distance themselves from such accusations. We've already covered the Nazis' obsessive interest in the occult in a previous episode, but what I find troubling is the way that it's become twisted by a variety of parties, including Nazi sympathizers, that the Nazis actually had real occult powers. These allegedly included magical powers, connections to the hollow earth, flying saucers, and other occult energy sources. This glorification of Nazi power often is threaded together with Holocaust denial, and I find that abhorrent. There's a very thin line between using fictional versions of Nazi occult fascination to that of celebrating Nazis as misunderstood victims. I still find it hard to believe we have to see modern neo-Nazis being celebrated and publicly defended by anybody. I don't like mentioning politics on the show, and I know some listeners have been annoyed that we've talked about politics at all, and I get that. But if people are confused about whether the Nazis are the bad guys, something has gone horribly wrong. Nazis are bad. If you feel a need to defend the Nazis, please go read some real history books or talk with actual Holocaust survivors. As much as I hate politics, I hate more the normalization of racism based on junk science. I think Jerry and Jeb do a good job of contextualizing the role the Shaver mystery has had in putting us in the world we're in now. It's a frequently ignored foundational text that builds to a time when ancient aliens and hollow earth theories are threaded through the foundations of modern pop culture as deeply as the tunnels of the Deros are in Shaver's conception of the earth. Don't believe me? See how you feel after this part two of the interview. Oh, one more thing. I know the flat earth gets lots of press and is shockingly accepted by a lot of the misinformed, gullible, and anti-establishment types in our population, But the Hollow Earth is all over the place. It even shows up in the latest Godzilla movie. It's in manga, it's in anime, it's in comics, it's in horror films, it's in fantasy films. I mean, where would the D&D world be without the Underdark and those extensive caverns and dungeons? And where do you think those ideas came from? Also... We talk a little bit about a famous science fiction writer and fan who was angered by the Shaver mystery. But what we didn't mention in the interview is another writer who read the Shaver stories and was also suffering from the same kind of psychological effects of an influencing machine. And that's Philip K. Dick. If the things we create are influenced by the things we consume, Shaver's influence is going to last a long, long time, even if people don't know his name or work directly. Now, If that's not enough background info for part two of this discussion, you can check the show notes where there's even more reading. I don't think the world is hollow, but this shaver stuff does seem to go on forever. Let's find out why this stuff matters and get on with the monster dog. So, uh, we're back. Uh, yeah. So these stories came out, uh, and it created some controversy.
3: 1945.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk about how they were received by the science fiction fandom.
4: They hit like crazy. I think uh, the magazine's uh, letters returned, letters to the editor went from something like 50 to like 2,500. Yeah. I mean, it, it basically became like the um, No Sleep Reddit thread where everybody else suddenly had... A share in these experiences and they immediately began to build the exact same kind of mythology right. you would find on reddit or 4chan now well, so
3: one of the things you, you, the listener needs to understand here is that this was not just an amazing stories thing this had existed with weird tales where people would write letters in and they would communicate and at some point they started printing the address of the letter writer so that they would start writing each other. This became the network that becomes fandom. I mean, when we talk about the internet existing on paper, this is the equivalent of, Oh, I could, I could send a direct message to this person. I could send them an email or something. Uh, I could comment on their comment and take it out. And so fanzines would emerge and communities would emerge now. But as, as, as y'all were saying, the numbers here exploded. And I think, and this, I suspect this was what Palmer was at least somewhat trying to do. I don't think it was like all of a sudden there were a ton of sci fi fans who were like, I like Ray Guns, but also the D-Ros. The fact that it was Lemuria, I don't think that that name was chosen by any accident. The fact that it's basically warmed over Theosophy, I think all of a sudden, it, you know, it's like, you know, you make a mistake in the in the keyword you use or the hashtag you use in Twitter. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, why am I surrounded by hollow earth people? What the hell just happened? Yeah. I think that's kind of what he was doing was basically using this network, but trying to tie it into another community that then glommed onto it.
1: But he also received pushback from some sci-fi people who thought that this was uh, disingenuous, uh, that it was exploitative uh, mm-hmm. And that it was contrary to the science focus that yeah. that had been the hallmark of science fiction before.
3: before and science fiction is beginning to emerge as something quasi-legitimate. It's not just ray guns and, and, you know, big-eyed monsters. You're starting to get what becomes the golden era of science fiction. It's about to hit. And he's like, also, by the way, Victorian occultist tripe.
1: I think that that sort of uh, fan pushback uh, – was legit. I mean, I think I mean, it was an interesting and legitimate uh, argument, right? When I think about these sort of discussions, this it became known as the Shaver mystery.
4: Palmer calls it the Shaver mysteries. That's yeah. the name it, it it he sort of brands it under.
1: He's being coy. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. an
3: understatement.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he's he's basically trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's saying you know, uh, we're not commenting on whether this is true, but it's claimed to be true by Shaver. That's a that's And it a,
3: clearly resonates with everything we know, like yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Yes,
1: yeah. yes. It, yeah, he can't just leave it alone. He's got to say that it, it seems to like be based on the underpinnings of, you know, a lot of lore, right? This yeah, is,
3: and, you know. and the, so these people start writing in, and they're like, you know, I went into the caverns, and my friend was vaporized, and I have a hole, a size of a coin in my arm. In my arm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, because they ran into the Duros, too. And and so these people start writing in, as Jerry was saying, like like No Sleep, like Creepypasta. Like, what's, what's that one with the, the Institute, like SC something? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where it's just like these stories. And I don't think everyone writing in was trying to tell a real story. I think some of them so, were like, this is fun. This is fun. Have, I'm going to tell a creepy story.
4: I have a confession to make. If you go back and listen to the... Mel's Hole episodes of the Art Bell show. Oh boy, <laughs> I, I go ahead. I, I am a trucker in one of those episodes who tells a ripping yarn about uh, a hole into the center of the earth. Total bull. I was a college kid, bored at work, yeah. and uh, and, yeah. and had not uh, you know had the the, the level of uh, adult adulting that I have now.
3: People lie. <laughs> I mean, yeah, people lie a lot. You know, I mean, you're not the guy who you know told them the story of Half Life, which is you know no. famous. Uh, but yeah, no, exactly. And and I would expect a lot of that. But then, so I think one of the things that's interesting here, we're going to get into the idea that 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 Palmer invents the flying saucer. Let's we'll get to that, but skip forward even a couple of years, and certainly by 1950. You have a number of people, many of them tied into the Shaver Network, who had deep, long histories in this occult lodge, this theosophical group, this ancient yes. teaching, that as soon as you get rockets, and then especially when you get flying saucers, they're like, oh, I used to get stuff from the ascended masters. I mean, I mean, they're from Venus, actually. I mean, they're from Venus. Uh, and this becomes the contactee movement, one of whom, Maurice Dorial, yes. uh, is directly plagiarizes people from the Lovecraft circle, like Lovecraft himself and Robert E. Howard and Frank Belknap Long, and is involved in the, the shaver community of letter writers and whatnot that emerges. Uh, well, and the, the idea of like the, the reptilians basically comes in right through there. Yes.
4: I can't remember off the top of my head who introduces Lovecraft to Theosophy, but he he writes one of his letters. He's like, "Give me." He literally says, "Give me more of that stuff." Get, so he, uh, from what
3: I think, there's two introductions. One, he gets the ideas from stuff he reads. So he reads. Is it? Uh, I always I always forget the name. It's Scott Elliott, But the 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 Atlantis. Uh...
1: The book that Jeb's trying to remember is the story of Atlantis by William Scott Elliot, which was later expanded to. The story of Atlantis and the lost Lemuria. I put a link to that in the show notes.
3: But right before he writes Cthulhu, he he reads um, a book on the idea of Atlantis and, and lost continents. Uh, and I'm again, I'm blanking on the name. Later in New Orleans, E. Hoffman Price introduces that's him a, to theosophy, yes, it's like, for real. And but that's well after he's written most of his stories, right. Um,
4: So it's a reification machine, really, at that point, where Lovecraft didn't believe any of this stuff. But it's authors who are sort of going, oh, I love this mythology, I'm going to adopt it. Believers read a story by someone by Lovecraft, like Lovecraft, and goes, oh, God, there's my mythology. They must also be channeling the ancient masters. Yes,
1: well, uh, Adamski uh, was straight up. Uh, trained in theosophy wasn't he
3: yeah yes. yeah yes, yeah and and dorial the guy who introduces reptilians to ufo lore through shaver he ran uh, a lodge in colorado he ran right. he ran a magical lodge now we mentioned love we just mentioned lovecraft right now i want to make a huge distinction here and, and and i did this on the twitter thing last night during his lifetime lovecraft mind he had a lot of faults we've talked about him before uh, but he mined the theosophical stuff. He mined all this stuff, turned it into fiction, and did have ramifications later. But when he started to get letters of like, "Tell me more about the reality of Cthulhu. Tell me where I can find a copy of like right. Necronomicon. Where are you getting this? Where are you getting?" He's like, "It's fiction. Uh, it's fake. He. It's he, not he, real."
4: He people to the curb about it.
3: Yeah. yeah. Stuff that he really believed, like, for example, Margaret Murray and the Witch Cult, he would go on and on about, but if he didn't believe it, he's like, look, and not only that, I don't want people, he literally said, I don't want people like looking for this stuff. I'm happy to tell them that Necronomicon's not real. It's fun to write about, but it's not real. Palmer is literally the opposite.
4: Yeah. He's taking stuff that's not real and wholesale I- regurgitating it as
1: as this true story. Yeah, yeah. that's really good. I mean that's a really yeah. good ana- comparison yeah yeah. yeah. And he,
3: and he has a much faster impact and I think that's important to know. Lovecraft stuff does eventually inspire a lot of ancient aliens. I think ancient aliens would have happened without him but he's a huge influence on it. Palmer immediately. So these stories, the Shaver stories, they they blow up but yeah, the sci-fi fans aren't happy. He quickly gets kicked out of amazing stories but he had already kind of started to build um a escape plan and found several new magazines, including fate magazine, which fate. becomes a, a major standard of the paranormal world in 1947. When flying saucers emerge, he had, they get instantly locked into the shaver mystery because he'd been talking about, you know, flying from the caverns of Mount chest and all that. And he hires Kenneth Arnold, the right. guy from the first flying saucers sighting, to go investigate the Maury Island UFO hoax.
4: Yes, indeed. Maury Island is one of those, oh my god, it shows up in everything. I don't know if you guys read the background literature for the latest Twin Peaks. Maury Island is like one of the major uh, subplots in there. And then uh, in the podcast Tannis, they use Uh, Maury Island as a a plot point. So it's one of these things that is alive and well, and, and I expect, you know... A Hellier type documentary about yeah. Moria any minute. Did Josh Gates just deal? No, he's he's trying to go legit. One of the big shows that's on. They did track, it on.
3: Well, they did it on UFO Hunters years ago.
1: Yes, they
4: did. But there was one that just ran like a couple of weeks ago, um where they were looking at some of metal from Moria. It uh, might it might have been Josh Gates. I can't remember. They all okay. run
3: it's all just yeah. One show. So I mean, the the I I have heard. Uh, I'm I'm hesitant to say this this way. I have heard responsible UFO people that I kind of do actually like as historians of ufology, et cetera, et cetera, who are really fascinated by Maury Island. And I'm not like, it's pretty obviously a hoax. It's it's a, a hoax.
1: It was a hoax while, uh, Kenneth Arnold was still on the ground. He knew it was yeah, a hoax. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was a hoax. But the fact that it's being regurgitated and uh, and heated up and swallowed as a... Uh, uh, or presented as a, a scrumptious meal is disturbing to me because it's... Uh, although, like Roswell, it's grown a little bit. Not even close to as much as Roswell's grown, but it, it's, it's grown. Co- it's
3: comparable to, like, Aztec, the Aztec UFO story. Right. Yeah,
1: yeah. It, it, uh, I- it, it has... Yeah, Let, let's talk about it. I mean, I don't want to go off to a huge tangent about Murray Island, but basically people claim that they saw a UFO and it dropped slag or metal parts on their ship. Metal,
4: burning, burning silver metal slag. And it, yeah. Killed, yeah. Their,
1: it killed their dog. And uh, Palmer got very excited because he wanted to cover it for his new magazine.
3: So, so he, he hires Kenneth Arnold, the pilot, right. and, and and fire extinguisher salesman to to go out and investigate it.
1: Yeah, now, like literally like a movie. I mean, Kenneth Arnold is not a UFO investigator.
3: <laughs> he's not in any investigator. Yeah,
1: and uh, he it's he realizes he's kind of in over his head really quickly. Yeah. Uh, the people there are um, – the people who uh, are making the claims are cagey. Uh, to say the least, they're yeah. In, they're inconsistent. Um, and uh, – Ultimately, well, yeah, the, the, the slag turns out to be from a nearby foundry, if I remember
3: correctly. Well, yeah. that's, that gets a little complicated, I, yeah, but yeah. then they, they put it on a plane to take it away because the Air Force yeah. is actually investigating it, and the plane crashes, yeah. kills yeah. two Air Force officers, and I think the two reasons this is continuing to reverberate through uh, Wulandia um, uh, is, one, the plane crash ha- adds this element, and I'm like, wow, that's not awful, Back to Salem, but two um, because Fred Chrisman shows up in the friggin' Jim Garrison JFK investigation. Oh He's yeah, one does. of the guys involved in this.
4: Well, there's two. There's two additional legacies. It shows up in Gray Barker's uh, book. I think it came out in 56, they 57. whole Men in <laughs> Black they business about the flying saucers right, yeah, and yeah. the Majestic Twelve documents reference it. After that, oh god. So it's it's got a uh a story that keeps rolling yeah, yeah. it
1: it becomes an anchor point that you can hang yeah. you can hang stuff on basically but it's it itself there's not much there there
3: well let me let me ask you all so arnold when he goes out there says oh my god somebody like phoned ahead and got me a hotel room and i don't know who <laughs> did it i want to like i want to ask you is it a Arnold is just making that shit up, or B, is it Ray Palmer?
1: I assume it was Palmer. It, it's it's Ray, Palmer.
4: It's Ray Palmer. Yeah. It's got to be Ray Palmer.
3: <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I just,
4: yeah. I mean, Palmer was trying to build this UFO mythology once he got to Fate, and Fate is the place where it all happens. Right, you know? and
1: Fate is because, so he goes to found Fate. Uh, he's partnered with, um, is it Jerome Clark?
3: Well, or Jerome they're Clark's they're one of the editors. Well, it's he's the, later. He's uh, later.
1: It's uh oh, oh Uh, heck. uh did, 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 did. I can't. Well, remember. while you're
3: trying to think of that, some of the are. It was yes, the Fullers. Yeah, the that's yeah. right, the, the
1: family. Yeah, but he wants to get away from Ziff Davis because hey, they're they're ever so slightly limiting his editorial control. <laughs>
3: right. So let's let's do a very quick chronology here. 1945, 46, Shaver mysteries explode, but they're causing controversy. And um, Palmer's like, I need to do something else. Uh, And he wants to go paranormal. It's very, very clear. 47, flying saucers. He hires Arnold to go investigate Maury Island. Now, here's the thing. 1947, flying saucers, June 24th, and then a whole bunch of sightings over about three weeks. And it basically ends with the flying disc at Roswell, on July 8th, 1947. And after that, there aren't really a lot of flying saucer things. Now, in the halls of power, inside the Pentagon, there is actual interest with Project Sign, and then later yes. Project Grudge, Project Saucer, all that. But out in the public, while it's a fun, weird thing, they don't generally associate it with aliens or Martians. It's They're probably weapons and it kind of goes away and it only sort of reemerges in 1950 and 51 when it begins to be what we think of as ufos today that they're aliens that they're you know all, all the stuff that we now think of those three years is when palmer is building it i mean don't forget do
4: not forget that the first episode issue volume one number one and i've got it right over here of fate magazine was headlined with Kenneth, Kenneth Arnold's "The Truth About the Flying Saucers." Yes, yeah. they yeah. used that story of him flying in his Cessna, uh, seeing the discs out across the sky, as the foundation for this yeah. new business opportunity. And it's yeah. it is a business.
3: Yes, when so that we didn't call Palmer the the man who invents flying saucers. That actually comes from John Keel. Yes. Yep. And I think he's largely right.
1: I don't disagree at all. Uh, the more I read around this, um, uh, the more I became convinced that we wouldn't have flying saucers and that whole lore the way we do today if it hadn't been for Palmer. It I would mean, be very different. It'd be very different, indeed. It'd be very different. And fate I think- became like a, a really safe place to talk about any kind of weird
3: well, not just any kind of weird shit. Yeah. I'd like to point out, when he creates his basic thesis for what fate is, it's like, yeah, we're going to investigate, like, I don't know, ancient mysteries. And I'm like, mother. <laughs> it's just like, can I get away from it? You know, spooky archaeology is always at the base. It is always at the base. Because it's it's the myth that props all the rest of it up. But I
4: digress. I, I want to point out one thing about UFOs. You know the people in the government aren't dumb, and people in the government read trashy pulp magazine too. Yep. And Ros- Roswell they, they is they buy a, ranches in Utah. So they buy ranches in Utah. They they collect twenty plus thousand occult books and sit in Victorian uh, libraries doing podcasts in the middle of the night too. The thing to realize is that when Roswell happened, it was the government that said it was a UFO, and that yeah. becomes a kind of a kind of beat throughout the cold war. And I would offer up the hypothesis that if, if a government counterintelligence person would much rather have Joe public looking up at the sky and seeing something weird and saying, well, that's a man from Mars. Then uh, that's a exotic spacecraft or an exotic uh, piece of aeronautics. So there's, (laughs) there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of reification that goes on in the 50s, 60s, and 70s where where the UFO movement suits a lot of diverse yeah. interests in a very convenient way.
3: I, I don't know how much it does earlier. earlier. My own personal take, earlier, I think a lot of it is accidental. Like, I think, accidental. I think Roswell's entirely accidental. But, By the but, 80s, it, it's not. By the 80s, but, they are clearly oh doing
4: God, it. God, but Roswell just, it works so well. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: You so, know, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, we should probably take a moment here and say, uh, uh, rest in peace, Stanton Freeman. Uh, yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Did, did either, but just, just out of curiosity, did either of you meet him ever? I've met him, yeah, several yeah. times. Yeah, I, I only met him once. I saw him give a talk once, and then I met him in an Applebee's, because it was <laughs> the only place near the hotel, <laughs> out near the airport in Albuquerque. And he sat down next to me when I went to the UFO festival in Roswell. He sat down next to me when I was and trying to understand this whole thing. And I'm like, well, guys built this myth, just sat down. And we had this conversation. And that was when I realized prior to that conversation, I thought he was not just full of shit, but like a charlatan. I thought he was making this stuff up. That conversation made it clear to me that he wasn't. He actually did believe this stuff. It's just that he had given the talks that he gives so, so many, times many times, yeah, yeah, that that it comes across as canned and insincere. Yeah, uh, but no, I, I met him once, and it was it was actually quite interesting. I don't believe he's right about pretty much anything involving Roswell, but I digress.
1: I don't know Matt MoneyMaker, but the times I've interacted with him. Uh... I believe that Matt Moneymaker believes the things he says. I mean, yes, he's figured out a way to make money
3: on it. Yeah, he has a very unfortunate last name. Yeah,
1: well... Well, You know, his
4: dad's name is Rich Moneymaker, which is... Oh, my God. Oh, my. Oh, my God. You know, my... my, I, I run into this guy in the government all the time, you know... It's an interesting character who was who, who highly educated, often Ivy League educated, you know, extremely privileged and smart person who will plant a flag on something and let it destroy their career. And it's such a – I don't know if – because we don't have to do tenure, we have to be right enough to keep getting paid. I think there's a, a there's not a lot of self-checking as you as you age. And Friedman always struck me as one of these guys who had just he had planted a flag on this thing. It was paying his bill. It made him into a, enough of a celebrity for him to you know get the ego ego boost out of it that he was sort of satisfied with the idea he was oh, yeah. right about what was happening. But it's a it's a trait among academics that. I mean, it just happens. Like everybody knows that kooky guy who believes in. Well, I mean, there's some pff, Jeff Meldrum. There's some characters out there who have just planted a flag on this thing. Or bro- anyone frame. in
3: this conversation. Yeah. That?
4: <laughs> anyone in this conversation? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I would say yeah. with Friedman, I personally think. Uh, I, I we should get back to Shaver in a second, but I yeah. personally think that. My own belief is that he kind of got stuck with MJ12. Uh, yeah. Like, I absolutely think he thought it was an amazing Watergate at the beginning, and I think at some point, I think cognitive dissonance is a hell of a drug.
4: Yeah, it is, and those documents are not authentic. Like, I yeah. I, I I have analyzed them myself. If I know anything, it's government documents and the history of how they were produced, and those are not authentic government documents. There there are too many obvious flaws in them. Yeah. I mean it's a very good hoax by somebody who who did not know if I hoaxed the government document from that time period you would not be able to I
3: to tell it it was a hoax. So this was not someone who was Don't, in don't the, it don't, it, don't about that stuff man. <laughs> man. Don't admit <laughs> that stuff on open mic. All right. So so Shaver so Shaver and and Palmer they continued to do the Shaver mysteries for like a couple of years and then it basically becomes flying saucers.
4: Yeah, it morphs into the a flying flying saucer religion almost. Yeah, saucerianism.
3: Yeah, yeah. And and the the first wave of contactees sort of start to appear, basically doing what I would argue Palmer was doing, taking decades of the Western occult tradition, or a century or more of yeah, the Western occult totally tradition, yeah. and sci fiing it. Yep. Yeah, so like like Adamski, like, like uh, all the others.
1: That's a really interesting distinction, though. The, um, the religious approach, the spiritual approach, the New Age approach versus the nuts and bolts approach or uh, like I, what I would say the sincere inquiry into what are these things and where do they come from. Um, uh, there's there's a pretty big divide between the people who have been given wisdom uh, from these craft and from the inhabitants of these craft. Uh, and the people who just see lights in the sky and have strange experiences, uh, and and that that early uh, schism, I, as far as I can tell, is still out there. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know
3: if it is anymore. I, I well, no. I mean, I'm a champion for the puffed, you know that, but uh, it's not like it, you know, it's it's not like it is when there's a keyhole around. Uh, or NICAP, or anything like that. I well, mean,
1: what about uh, what do, the Tom DeLonge stuff? What What do you think their goal is?
3: Tom DeLonge is working with a dude with a ranch with space poltergeists.
1: It's space poltergeists
4: and, and techno wizardry. And,
3: and, and dire it, wolves and synchronicity. No, there, there's no barrier there.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, so it, you, because, you know, I see what you're saying. You're saying the barrier is just broken down completely. It's I has gone. Gotcha. It's not literally... not that one side won or the other. They just
3: merged. Oh no, I think one side won. Uh, well, who won? The... the 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 I I I personally think that the putting theology on the on the end of weird shitology, uh, cryptozoology, ufology, parapsychology is largely a structure of the social status of the sciences in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. And as that social status declines so do they. We are, We live in a world, here's an analogy for you, we live in a world of a new demonology, but you know, this idea that I'm going to looking for a gigantopithecus or a plesiosaur, or I'm trying to understand recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, or I'm looking for people from zeta reticuli, makes a lot of sense from basically the end of World War II, and maybe a little earlier, and about the 1970s, and that's when it begins to break down, uh, is, is in that period, and I think at this point it's gone.
4: Well, I will admit that I have two things in common with Kenny Fetter. Well, three things if you count the profanity. A degree in archaeology, and I first learned about uh, Eric Von Daniken in a barber shop. I, I went to Carl's, Carl's barber shop in Louisville, Texas, as a high school junior, senior, and in the pile of books you could read that smelled like nicotine and uh, you know barber oil was a copy of uh, Von Daniken's first book, and I started reading it. And to my 16- or 17-year-old mind, you know, steeped in the religion of Indiana Jones, it made a f***ing sense. But after I finished about my second or third class as an undergraduate in formal archaeology, it didn't make a lick of sense. But I can totally understand how people who are exposed to that stuff, well-crafted and well-written, could totally turn Jesus into first an ascended master and then second into uh, an alien like it it makes perfect it's it's logistically oh, yeah. and logically convenient to preserve your beliefs
3: like i think it's actually harder to keep it as nuts and bolts or pelts and paws you know Absolutely. like i have i i have very hard times with a gigantopithecus like bigfoot i actually have less problems with Demon portal, Bigfoot, because I don't know how demons and portals work, but I know how Gigantopithecus would probably work. Actually, i i
4: wrote a I wrote a blog about that for a friend of mine's paranormal site called Quantum Bigfoot, where I made that same case, where I was like, "Look, guys, a a dimension time hopping Bigfoot is more believable than Bigfoot. <laughs> like, yeah. there's nothing in the fossil record. There's no way this. Like, if you want to believe in Bigfoot, believe in Bigfoot as a time hopping alien." Not as any kind of a, a North American primate, because yeah. there's nothing about Bigfoot that makes any fucking sense.
1: So what you're saying is that the bionic Bigfoot was a documentary.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean <laughs> that's a lot closer now. And so here's I think where this ties into the into the the Shaver stuff is that um, you have sort of flying saucers get taken over and it explodes in an era of big science. Initially, there's contactees and they kind of you know, die on the vine for a bit. The shaver stuff, the fact that the, the sort of the initial seed is straight out of theosophy. It's straight out of Lovecraft. It's straight out of all those things. I think that that is, I think there's an element of the fruit for, the fruit of a poison tree. I, I, I think the fact that it's, since it's there at the beginning, yes, you can have people talk about radar traces and government conspiracies for a while, but eventually it was going to go back there, and it absolutely has. Uh, and I think that that's one of the integral parts of Shaver is Shaver gets downplayed and made to be this weird little quaint thing by historians of, of sort of ufology. Not necessarily historians of, of contacteeism or flying saucerism, but historians of ufology. But you fast forward to the early 21st century, and it looks frankly a lot more like Lemuria than it looks like Zeta Reticuli.
4: Well, I drew down from the shelf here the book that changed all of that. It is The Interrupted Journey, The um, Lost Hours, Aboard A of Flying Saucer by John G. Fuller. And my copy is autographed by Benjamin Simon, the doctor who wrote the introduction. The, this is, of course, the Barney and Betty Hill case, right. which took u- ufology out of the hands of people like Palmer and legitimized. That's 1965, so that's roughly 20 years after the Shaver Mysteries first show up. And about 18, 17 years after Roswell, and it completely changed it it opened the door for the spiritual version of ufology that we see in the 70s. I would
3: say two books in, in quick succession do that one and Passport to Magonia. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Passport to Magonia, I only only learned this back in I read it years ago and I would forgotten this. I was preparing for a paper I was giving earlier this year at a conference on like the deep past and fairies and all this stuff. It opens with Pakal's sarcophagus. Right.
1: What the fuck? Just, Which uh, straight uh, the is straight out exactly. of uh, Cheers to the Gods. That's the uh, yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So and, no, and, good morning to the magicians.
3: Yeah, the these two well, yeah, there's that there's that whole element. But yeah, the basically Shaver anticipates and well, not Shaver doesn't. Palmer anticipates all well i guess shaver does i mean shaver in essence is anticipating the sexually charged narratives of abductions
4: yeah absolutely absolutely and that's that's that runs right through
3: all the shaver stories right up until the very last ones yeah i mean his like we were talking about how the pulps were slowly becoming basically erotica and porn his stuff had to be massively tamped down to make it into the pages well, he has,
4: in the story, he has a wife that lives with him in the cave who's very like the woman that people in the Vril movement see from time to time. Like, like hot, blonde women, you know, giving you the good news is a pretty common
3: trope in, yeah. at this time. In and this. contactees with the same yeah. thing, with Aura Reigns and, and, and all of that. Um, and then there's all this weird, like, sort of sadomasochism and this other kind of, like again, just weird stuff. Is that it
4: Jeb, you may know because I don't. Is it Palmer that introduces the whole concept of the Nordics and the tall whites and that whole
3: no mythology? Uh, not not really, because uh, because honestly, in, in Lemuria and Shaver stuff, it's all they're all weird and giant, sixty foot snake women, elder things. Right. Yeah. So all yeah.
4: that comes from the, the, the contactees. Paint. Well, the, yeah,
3: the but, early fifties, but, but it's just like the stuff before. I
1: was going to say, but isn't it basically repurposing the
3: and find
1: us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon.
0: Everybody shush William Shatner has something to say.
2: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you
0: do when the woman you love dies?
3: yeah, well, and also quite a few of the contactees. I mean, so you know, I've gotten this far without mentioning Michael Barcomb. but uh, you know, quite quite a few of the contactees are have other kinds of rejected knowledge, like like Nazism. yeah. and so one of the one of the contactees, George Hunt Williams, Williamson, that um, shaver pa- or uh, Palmer published, was basically a Nazi sympathizer. So, yeah, the tall whites and the Nordics and all of that. You know, the, the idea that the Nazis had a base in Antarctica and they had super secret technology, that was coming from Nazi sympathizers within years of the war. Yes. Right? We, fact,
1: let's, let's let's actually hop back to this uh, timeline thing for just a minute because we're gonna I want to get to that, but I want it to come in context to the timeline. So we have this uh, <laughs> controversy in Palmer and the fandom. He breaks off and forms Fate magazine. forty yeah, 48. Uh, There are uh, – we've talked about on Monster Talk before. uh, The other big media at the time around this kind of stuff was uh, Long John Nebel. Uh, Oh, Long John Nebel. Yeah, and so Long John uh, was already having on contactees and psychics and all sorts of things. Uh, And he started to include some of the shaver mystery stuff on his show. So that was coming out of New York. Um, and uh, they actually had... The show ep- called The Party Line. The Party Line, yeah. yeah. It was it was a precursor to Coast to Coast. If you haven't listened oh, yeah. to our episode about it, uh, I recommend that you do so. There's some there's some audio out on YouTube. Uh, we can put links to that in the show notes. Um, it's, it's really amazing. I, I, I think it holds up very well. It's very engaging. Uh, Nebel- it's funny to
4: listen to it, because this was at a time when everyone, every American white male sounded angry, uh, the, 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 well, that, feature, that's, that's, that's not
3: happened since. Yeah.
4: <laughs> but it's like, sir, it's, it's the opposite of, uh, of the Rogan experience where it's like, sir, do you mean, sir, 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 it's, it's hilarious to listen to.
1: They're, they're very and, polite. Uh, but, but like you say, the anger, uh, uh, certitude, uh, uh, people, people are eloquent.
3: Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of eloquence and, uh. Uh, but
4: then there's some great Brooklyn accents in there too. There are,
1: there are. <laughs> you can be eloquent and be from Brooklyn. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. and, what, what, and where hearing
3: we... Palmer talk on the radio does not help your attitude towards his credibility. Uh,
1: no. no. <laughs> but you know, you know, we've talked about Palmer all this time. We haven't mentioned something really important about Ray. Uh, Ray Ray had uh, a physical uh, injury when he was about seven years old. Uh, and as a consequence of that, his back was broken, and he spent a huge amount of time uh, locked into traction. They thought he was going to die. Basically, he was sent off to a sanitarium to die. There's various versions of this story, but Ray was apparently about four feet tall because of his back injury. Yeah. Uh, He has a hunched back. I think uh, Jerry mentioned that, uh, and that's how he self-described. Um, and this is this is of course why he does not
4: go to World War II. If we're wondering, he was he was not a yeah. coward or or a draft dodger. No, he, he would never have be,
3: been drafted. Yeah,
1: right. Yeah. Right. So he 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 did uh, other things. You know, he entertained people, I suppose. But um, th- this this uh, this is actually tied to this interesting thing that you, you mentioned before, Jeb, where people are uh, contacting you and they're thinking you're talking about Ray Palmer, the Atom. And, yes. And uh, th- this is uh, I find this fascinating. So. Uh, what happened is the Atom was one of those characters that DC uh, had picked up and was going to revitalize. And so they decided to turn the Atom into a, uh, a science hero. And uh, this is Julius Schwartz uh, who was doing this work. And he's a friend of Ray Palmer's. And he calls up Ray and says, hey, I want to turn uh, the Atom into a hero again. We're going to do it in DC. And I want to name him after you. And of course, the joke being that the Adam's power is he's very small, but he's also a science guy, uh, which is, I think, uh, I think not that accurate. <laughs> I mean, Ray is known for his science fiction work, but when you actually read what Ray wrote, it's not that sciencey.
0: Uh, well, yeah, I, I, yeah.
4: let me let me caveat that just a little bit, Blake. If you read the old fake magazines, we're we're kind of being a little hard on him. Fate did a lot of hard science, and they did. And in later years, in the seventies, they did a lot of good debunking. Once, once Palmer had kind of left the scene, but but Fate is brought low by the worst of it. But there's actually some damn good stuff in there. There are whole issues that read more like like uh, Popular Mechanics than than a UFO scene. So you're well, saying awesome. it's
3: more Discovery Channel than History Channel.
4: It's more Discovery Channel than History Channel in that occasionally there is a little nugget of goodness in a, in a sea of just stuff I watch while I'm folding my laundry.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I have, uh, I don't have some of the really oldest fates, but I do have some, uh, the, uh, the Watertown ghosts mystery. I Yeah. Have to track oh the yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was- was that
1: born? That was born out of Fate magazine, wasn't it? Uh, uh, to an extent. I mean, the the photo existed long before that, but the first serious investigation—well, even that's not true. Herewood Carrington investigated it, but uh, I don't know if he published his work. But the uh, later on, uh, it got researched in, uh, in most of the details we have, and one of the better photos we have of the original is from uh, Fate as well. So, yeah, yeah. So. Um, Anyway, I didn't mean to sidetrack on that, but the, uh, uh, yeah, Palmer uh, has uh, broken off uh, from this. And so I was going to say the the science fiction community is mad at him because he keeps keeping this coy attitude around whether or not these things are true. Does he really believe in the Shaver mysteries? Is that stuff really supposed to be happening or is it all fiction or what is going on? And uh, the, one of the famous stories around that is that, at one of these science fiction conventions, which were still in their early days back then, uh, Palmer gets cornered uh, in a elevator by a fan who's also a writer, uh, a guy named Harlan Ellison. And, yeah. and Ellison insists that Ray tell the truth about what's going on with the Shaver Mysteries.
3: And I'm just going to put this out there: Harlan Ellison would make, if I was in an elevator with him, he would make me pee my pants because he's a terrifying individual. He was
1: a very terrifying individual. He yeah. uh, he was also not very tall. I was just these both these guys are basically titans within science fiction, yet tiny in real life. So, uh, just imagining the two of them uh, having that encounter in an elevator, I would have uh, loved to have been a fly on the wall, but. Ray basically said, look, I was cornered, I was in an elevator, it was obvious Harlan wasn't going to let me go until I confessed, so I gave him what he wanted, so he'd let me out of the elevator, right?
2: Well, Mr. Shader, let me talk with Ray Palmer again for a couple of minutes, if you will, please. Hello. Hello, Ray. Yes? Yeah. Yes. Ray, sometime ago, we had a young man on the program just about a year ago, uh, a young man who writes science fiction. Yes, and he made the statement that he met you at a convention, a science fiction writers convention, a few years back. That is correct, and uh, you know who I'm referring to. Yes, I do, Harlan Ellison. That's right. He made the statement on the program here that you told him that the uh, that the Shaver mysteries all fiction, and that you publish them just to create good circulation for amazing stories. Well, I think now that that demands uh, an explanation which I think I can give you. Well, will you try, please? Now, when I went to that convention, I was very sick. Mm-hmm. I was invited to the convention and uh, uh, made the trip in spite of being ill. Now, when I got there, I expected to receive... Uh, uh, what I'd say, a courteous reception. And instead, I met with a group which I, uh, which I believe uh, was closely linked with Mr. Ellison. Yes. who had apparently decided that they were going to badger me. I see. Now, they kept asking uh, questions which, uh, actually, you can't answer without, uh, uh, it's a sort of a question, that do you still beat your wife? I understand. So in the exasperation, finally, when he confronted me in this elevator, I said, well, what do you want me to answer to the question? And he said, the truth. I said, well, you, I've told you the truth, and you haven't accepted it, so my only alternative is to tell you what you want to hear, that this is entirely fiction, and that it was done for the purpose of raising circulation. Now, this was done in what... Uh, you might say, with anger. It was done also as sarcasm. And it was done to rid myself of these, this group which intended to follow me the whole, the whole uh, uh, convention and uh, uh, apparently uh, were having a great deal of fun out of badgering me. They had no intentions of... Uh, of giving me a chance to, get to have a fair say on the thing. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that is the actual conditions in my statements to Mr. Ellison. I've had uh, several run-ins with Mr. Ellison since, and uh, one of them came about as a result of his appearance on your program, and uh, I did at that time tell him that if at... Uh, my statements to him in that elevator worked, were in the, in the vein that which I just described to you. I see. I think you could easily understand it. Uh, I don't believe that uh, it is necessary to give an honest answer to a person who uh, doesn't give you the courtesy. I see. Of, uh, of uh, the chance to give you an honest answer. Uh, actually... actually uh, I don't think that anybody would be uh, uh, against an editor trying to increase the circulation of a magazine. Well, I want to clarify that, too. Yes. I wasn't hired by Ziff Davis to, uh, uh, to, uh, to get a lot of return. <laughs> I was hired to sell magazines, <laughs> and I realized from the very beginning that the shaver mystery was a thing that would sell magazines. We had a circulation of around 50000 when I took this thing over, and uh, it was 135000 when I got hold of the Shaver mystery. And overnight, we raised it 50000 to 185000 which is a sensational figure for a fiction magazine of that type.
3: That's possibly the most honest thing I've ever heard him say.
2: Yeah, basically. Yeah, it
4: truly is. But it's impossible to underscore how small that community was at that time. And he's not talking I mean, about how
1: tall they were. He's talking about... How tiny the community is in number! I I,
4: I regret <laughs> that I'm just slightly too young to have gotten out of the early sort of sci-fi stuff uh, that I went to in the 80s and early 90s because that community even then was very small. You could yeah. show up at a sci-fi convention and meet legends. You yeah. know, and not only meet them, you could eat lunch with them. Yes. I yeah. like that anymore.
3: You this, know? Is, this is when it was still actually like freaks and geeks and weirdos and not the only thing that is the part of our economy.
4: Right, exactly. So to have Harlan Ellison and Ray Palmer in the same elevator is not fantastical. It also underscores the extent to which the Shaver Mysteries at the time were influential and we've just sort of decided to forget about them.
3: Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, because ufologists absolutely wanted to, you know, the, the, you know, Kehoe and NICAP and, and, and traditional ufology, they didn't want to do with the contactees. They didn't want to do with occupant cases. They didn't want to do with crashes. All these things were being reported and said, and they're like, no, just radar, just photos. Okay. Maybe because there's a hypnosis involved, this couple in, in New Hampshire, maybe with the, with the Hills, yeah. Um, but this was a large chunk of it. I, I don't. Know if, I don't know if I would say the bulk of it. But there, there's been a long history of pelts and paws or nuts and bolts people ignoring demonological or religious imagery and abduction cases or strange, uh, you know, portals and and UFOs and whatnot and cryptozoology cases and all these things being weird and intermixed. And I would argue that it is when people are able to tell these stories themselves, not unlike the letter columns, uh, with the Internet, that all of a sudden this comes back. Yeah. you know th- That the gatekeepers aren't gatekeeping. So the,
4: the point is, is that Ray Palmer created in his own way what we might call modern Saucerianism with the idea that. In his mind, the Saucerians, the, the creatures from another planet, didn't come from another planet. They came from inside the Earth, right? Like, that was what he was pushing, is that these these critters that we see as, as aliens were actually the precursors to modern humanity. And in a way, that's a lot neater and cleaner than the idea that um, somebody could develop faster than light travel and get here to planet Earth. And without look like us. us. Them, and then look like us. Exactly.
3: Yeah, no. And, and, and in fact, you, you see that idea that things were here, but then they go out. I mean, the X-Files eventually went there, for example, in fiction all the time afterwards. You know, it, it's it, it. And of course, there's elements of of the previous writers have been talking about it as well. No, it, it's super influential and no one wants to mention it. And I kind of get why, like I have been trepidatious about this episode because the more I read of I Remember Lemuria, the more I read of this, I'm like, I don't like this guy. Like this guy is using a a man with clear mental problems with with, with mental illness, taking his stuff and capitalizing on it and searching for others. Like he searched for other shavers. He sure did. He just didn't find them. Yeah. And then coyly, which is probably the the most polite way one can tricksterily say it, um, spins it into a small industry. All for the benefit. And he and he pretty much just smirks about it through the rest of his life. And I'm like... The one... The, the, the sort of the takeaway for me. I have been interested in this stuff since a very early age. You know, like every other Gen Xer at some point I could say, well, I watched in search of. You know, but like since a very early age I've been interested. And I have been interested in this academically for a very long time. And the thing... I had always been told by folks is, oh, don't, there's no interest in that. It's just kooks and charlatans. You know, it's just people in Arkansas. You know, it's just this. Now, I think they're wrong in terms of the big social, first of all, you look into the history of weirdology, it's actually tied very much into elites and all other kinds of people all across the spectrum. Everyone has elements of this. It's, it's It doesn't work that way. Um, and secondly, it's clearly had a massive impact on our society. It's been a lot easier to talk about conspiracy theories since, oh, I don't know, November eighth, two thousand sixteen. But literally getting to the bottom of flying saucers and UFOs and seeing a guy hearing stuff from an arc welder and a guy who's basically a charlatan selling it is not really making me feel good right now about studying people who believe in UFOs.
1: What happens next? What happens next? What what does he do? He goes, he makes, he makes Fate magazine. What happens to the Shaver Mysteries?
4: I mean, he keeps running with them up until the fifties. I think the last Shaver mystery story is nineteen fifty-six. Yeah, and they are heavily built on by other people. I think it's actually a, a woman that writes in and proposes the mythology that's hev- that. And this is this goes to the whole Dulce story. This idea that uh, uh, there are elevators that can take you in oh, all. Yes. World's major capitals down into the uh, the place where the Daros and Taros exist. You push the buttons
3: um, a certain amount of time or something. Yeah, like yes. That. and okay.
4: so there's these people that run around looking for elevators to try to take them down into or the basements uh,
3: under a pizza place. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah,
4: well, let's that's, that's uh, can You, you know what? A, I get that pizza place, and there's no basement there.
1: Well, there's no yeah. basement. Um, there's, that's a the, common problem. There, what, can you quickly talk about Dulce? Uh, I don't. Some of our listeners have probably never heard of it.
4: Oh, you have not. You have never done an episode on Dulce, have the, the you? The closest
1: we can't. We br- briefly talked about it when we talked about Skinwalker.
4: So Dulce Base was one that was sort of born out of the uh, Art Bell show, really. We yeah, a lot like John Long. I assume – if your li- listeners don't know uh, Art Bell, they need to log out right now and and do something
3: <laughs> different. Well, it comes out but, of the Benowitz affair to some degree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
4: And it's this idea that under Dulce, New Mexico, is a giant alien base. I'll tell this story since we're uh, since we're talking. Um, I got a call a couple of years back. My first job with uh, the agency I worked for was treaty archivist in the United States. So I get a call from a guy who, uh, a soccer fan from the UK who has an English accent and probably likes uh, uh, cyan-colored shirts, who asked me for a copy of <laughs> the Griada Treaty with between the United States government, President Eisenhower, and uh, the gray aliens. And I informed him without even walking into the vault that we did not have such a treaty. Of course, I knew what it was. This was supposed to be in 1954. And uh, we got into a huge road that lasted about two hours in discussing this. This is not something that you're supposed to do <laughs> in your capacity as a, as a government employee. And whenever he found out my last name was Drake... Uh, that made it oh, even boy. worse. That's a, that's a very, that's a very icky situation to be in. It really yeah. Is. Uh, if your name is Drake and, and you work for, uh, a, 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 a certain government agencies, that's not great. You were, know? You,
1: you were on the phone for two hours. Were you able to, two get, hours. to get like a snack, like, like a, like a, some Ike and Mike or it anything
4: solid hours. And there was a point Blake where I literally had my feet up on the wall and I was like stomping the wall, trying to get off the phone with this guy. Um, The Griotta Treaty does not exist, but it was a treaty that was supposed to be between the gray aliens, who some people are villainous, who are, and others are good guys. And basically, what President Eisenhower supposedly agreed to was that we would allow the grays to take a certain quota of human beings uh, from the Earth in exchange for access to their advanced technology. And uh, I cannot remember the guy's name, and God, I wish I could. Supposedly, on the Art Bell show, it was disclosed that the base where the Greys, the Dracos, the Tall Whites, all these characters interact and live together is under a mountain in Dulce, New Mexico. And it goes down into the part of the world that is inhabited by the Darrow.
3: yeah. Yeah, base, like they were they were they were building a base, they were already trying to build a base, and they break into an already existing cavern and they're like, oh exactly. Oh shit <laughs> people. Yeah, no, this this comes out of even I think even before the Art Bell thing, so there's the Paul Benowitz stuff in the 80s, and I am blanking on the name of the abductee that allegedly she has been down to level six, the hell level. The hell where, level where oh, they oh. are like like mutating people and that there's people down there that are screaming for help. But the guards are said, don't talk to them because they're clearly crazy. And so if you've ever heard any stories like Montauk, like pizza gate, like all these things of, Oh, by the tens of thousands, people are being kidnapped and used for horrible experiments and sacrificed and cannibalized. This, this story in the, in the, in the eighties that becomes Dulce it's very shaverian it's extremely shaverian it is
4: it totally is and it requires shaver for that piece of the mythology it yeah. really does yeah um but the idea that you can get on these magical elevators and go down into the world really adds to the sort of the mythology of it i've even i even saw somebody the other day who suggested that uh, Alyssa lamb was trying to get to the uh, the darrow's world in that elevator in that damn hotel where she ended up in the
1: in oh the
4: God, Like, no. these stories that's can be a, used.
1: That's the wrong way. She was going up. I know. <sighs> I know. But the, the
4: point is, is that these stories are so fluid and yeah. so universal in these tropes that anything, it's perfect for the puffed. Uh, yeah. What,
3: is that well, I mean, par- bar- Barcoons' par- ap- apocalyptic, uh, what does he call it, um, uh, improvisational apocalypticism. I mean, wow. exactly.
4: Any yeah. any of your convenient mythologies related to the paranormal can be folded into this from QAnon, Pizzagate, Alyssa Lamb. Yeah. It all works. You just keep adding, you just keep adding, you know, Lego expansion kits to the original mythology and you can go on forever.
3: And I think the fact that it starts with Palmer doing that exactly. I think gives it part of that cast. Like, you, you know, it. I think the, I think that is important to the fact that UFOs have always been the one like this. You know, we, we, you know I, we're talking about the paranormal unified field theory. One could argue it's a takeover of all the rest by parapsychology. But if you look at those, those things, you look at crypto, you know, the normal thing that monsters talks about. You look at parapsychology. For most of the 20th century, they tried to stay within their alleged academic, whatever you want to call it. We're looking for plesiosaurs. We're looking for psychic abilities, whatever. UFOs started there, but it was always the one that bled farther. You know, that would produce a keel, that would produce a valet, that would produce abductees and level six and all of that. And I think the fact that it started with a mishmash of Ohaspe and pulps is
4: part of that. Well, it's the people's literature in the same way that 4chan and Reddit and 8chan and all that is the people's literature it's a place where those folks can get affirmation in a way that they can't get from traditional academia. I mean, they're they're well, trying to build a sidebar to legitimate intellectual pursuit that satisfies their their ends.
3: And I'm trying to remember the exact quote from Ray Palmer, but Ray Palmer at some point basically said something like the purpose of the paranormal is to make you think.
4: Yeah. But it it kind of
3: doesn't. <laughs> no, it, it just makes you regurgitate these these ideas but call them new and shiny.
1: He also I mean, said, but he also kind of tied into my pet peeve about the way that fiction and, and, and uh, fantasy sort of overlap in, in folklore. He said that uh, fiction often shapes our perception of reality, particularly of the extraordinary. And he was specifically talking there about how that people's, perception of the unusual is affected by the things they've read or experienced in, in the world of fiction.
3: So he, and you're like, yes. Yes, yes, yes Ray.
1: Ray. Yes. The things you are writing is affecting how people perceive the stuff that they're experiencing. Yes, exactly. So, uh, yeah. And also one more thing that I think is of interest. It, there's a sort of stereotype uh, of the skeptic who just dismisses these weird claims as that person's got a mental illness. That person, in, you know, to, in the non-PC way, right, exactly. that, that person's crazy. Like, or, like all
3: know. the people telling me why you're looking into this.
1: Right, exactly. So the thing is, though, there are people with mental illness. And I think in this particular case, multiple people with mental illness have been uh, taken advantage of, manipulated, and uh, lost a lot because of others... Who were trying to control the narrative, uh, not just Benowitz, uh, not just Shaver. I'm thinking here of like Phil Schneider, who was uh, uh, another Dulce person. Who uh, well, well, here, here, yeah,
3: here's a know. here's one for you. I mean, so Shaver, but to be fair, as I sort of alluded to earlier, Shaver's life actually sort of settles down. He, I mentioned the rocks. We should probably just mention this he eventually rock starts books. finding like pictures in rocks everywhere, which is a whole other fascinating thing. Par, but
4: par- It's clearly paranoid, yeah.
3: yeah. Which, I mean, as an archeologist, people are constantly bringing to our office, like, yes, I, I found this, I found this. I'm like, that's a rock. And they're like, oh, but it's got this. I'm like, it's a rock. And then at some point I just have to, I'm like, look, I'm sorry. I can't tell you anymore. But, um, uh, here's a, here's an excellent example. Uh, so Shaver and Palmer, Shaver's life settled down and he kind of found a purpose and one could argue again, sort of a certain therapy, but here's one for you. The Montauk project where you have these guys that clearly have stuff going on with them, which gets, which gets rationalized into, well, they have problems because of all the awful things that were done to them in the caverns underground, very Shaverian, Mm -hmm. um, which then not only, develops a whole bunch of, of paranormal lore, becomes the clear basis, given that the show was initially going to have the title Montauk, yeah. of Stranger Things. Things. Which becomes this gigantic thing, and inspires a whole bunch more, based off of people that are basically based off of like modern-day Richard Shavers.
1: And causes revitalization of Dungeons & Dragons.
3: Well, that's yeah. fair.
1: Yeah, the the uh,
4: the Stranger Things Dungeons and Dragons uh, set is pretty sweet.
3: But yeah, I I, ha- I have seen one, and it, it is pretty nifty. But yeah, no, this is this is a recurring theme. Like I have I have long thought someone not me needs to write an article about this kind of dyad of an ex a exploiter or whatever word you want to use and someone who has like clearly getting things that there's there's some sort of mental health element and it's being rewritten and repurposed Benowitz is an example montauk's an example uh the uh philadelphia experiment falls in here oh yeah and there are there are others Carl, carlos Allende.
4: uh the philadelphia experiment I, montauk i i don't want to talk about montauk i i i think there will be a time in the future when people will talk about montauk but now's not the time to talk about it but with carlos sayende and the and the Philadelphia Experiment, that was just literally a very sick person who who had found a hobby that people just decided to believe in. Like, yeah. he's a guy that just wrote crazy stuff yeah. in books, and people decided to adopt it as a... And man, Philadelphia Experiment, that is one of the ones I really want to believe. I really want to believe it. I loved that movie as a kid. It was so <laughs> good. And the mythology is so rich, I just want that one to be
3: true so badly. Oh, it's a a great eye. I mean, Berlitz, you know, he batted a thousand on that. Bermuda Triangle, Roswell Incident, Philadelphia Experiment. You know, publishing that stuff in the 70s, he had a very Palmerian, like, eye for inspired talent, if you want to put it that way.
4: Yeah, I mean, the Eldridge story. I mean, the Eldridge is now the last time I looked into it it was a Greek shipping vessel, but I mean none of the story is true. And and Carl Allen was not in any of the places he said he was no. in. No. But it just it's just great. And it and it was so compelling that even the the Office of Navy Intelligence looked into it. Like they got that thing and was like, look, man, we we need to take a look at this. Wow. Well
3: that that's a topic for a whole other discussion. Sure. The 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 reification or the not the reification, the ratification of of claims when the government's like, oh, we'll look into it. And it's like, oh, no. No, 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 no. No, no. Hire, hire a friggin' folklore Hire an anthropologist. Hire yeah, a Yeah, because as soon as they look so, into
1: it, it gives it, just, it, gives it a yeah. Gravitas- well, the government's look into it. Yeah. There's got to be something there. Right, oh, my right. God. So
4: I, I have to say this. Like, the volume of crazy mail we get is you couldn't even conceive of. I, I don't even want to talk about how much crazy mail we get at work. And but yet we still have to read it and go, mm-hmm. ah, there's nothing here, there's nothing here, there's nothing here. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We better look into this one. And as soon as you have to look do some due diligence on something, it gives it a lot of legitimacy. And then yeah. the whole world is suddenly on you, um, you know, like flies on what flies go on, you know. And the, you know, the government is cognizant of that. Like, we tend to be fairly careful about our level of exposure because, again, we read this stuff, we understand this stuff, and we know that as soon as we put our eye on something, the the world's eye is on it. So, but people stumble onto stuff all the time that, that they interpret incorrectly and, and then write letters about.
1: I mean, that's just reality. Yep. It's true. It's true, but... Uh... Uh, it well the thing is, and I realize we've kind of rambled all over the place because oh yeah yeah
4: yeah. But
1: and, there's and, first of all, I knew we would, and and second of all, it's because this story has threads that go all over American yeah. weird culture. I mean, all yeah. over the place. And I so I want to I want to ask you a question, Doctor Atlantis.
4: Who is the monster in the Shaver mystery story? Is it UFOs? Is it the Darrow's? Is it mental illness? Who who is the monster in this story?
1: <sighs> well, capitalism. I mean, capitalism. Uh, the American. Capitalism it's the American failed mental health system. Yeah. How about that? How about that? Uh, yeah. Uh, the the if if uh, America had a better mental health care system, uh, then instead of being imprisoned and locked up and maltreated, then maybe Shaver would have gotten uh, some help that he desperately needed. Now, in a sense, he got help and was able to make a living because of Palmer. So, in one sense, Palmer, as a person who really values uh, um, testable reality, uh, Palmer could be seen as sort of a villain to me, uh, exploitative, but Everything in my reading suggests that Shaver and Palmer did not have a exploitative relationship. They had a friendship that just was one that also led to them both relying on each other.
4: To uh, the point that they seem to
1: have moved very close to each yeah, other at, yeah. at a point later.
4: And they died in the same year.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I um I I think um I, you know, a lot of friendships come and go and uh, theirs was no exception. It it had its ups and downs, but um, I think Shaver really cared about Palmer, and I think Palmer really cared about Shaver, and uh, I think it seemed like by the end of his life, uh, Richard was getting uh, some pretty decent therapy through his rock art, even though it appeared to be nothing more than uh, pareidolia. He was also able to take that and make... Fairly impressive looking artwork out of it. So and
3: and, and to contextualize it. Yeah. You know, so. th- there's a difference between I'm writing Howling manuscripts about like people being shredded under the earth by cannibals and hey, look, I know the mysteries of the universe through my rock art. Yeah. Like that's the, one is a lot healthier. So I mean I guess my the conversation here, I still don't like Palmer. I don't know if I'd call him the monster if I had to actually sort of find a monster, I mean, I said capitalism somewhat jokingly, but I I think I would elaborate and instead say this, this sort of attitude of like, Oh, it's, it's kind of fun. It's kind of true. Does it really matter that, that does it really matter attitude, which absolutely Ray Palmer clearly had. Yes. And so many people after him have had, you know, the, when your smug friend is like, Oh, well, ancient aliens, that's fun. No one really believes that. And I'm like, yeah, Yeah, actually, they do. They do. They absolutely (laughs) do. That's the monster, whatever that Uh, is.
1: No, I agree. I agree. So I want to say, though, that uh, Palmer, towards the end of his life, we we started to talk about this before, and I I cut you off because I I wanted to kind of hit it chronologically. But he got involved in, first of all, some very right-wing politics, Uh, He got involved with supporting uh, some people who were, let's say, Palmer himself tried to distance himself from the anti-Semitism, but the people he was publishing did not.
3: And then he became a big fan of George Wallace.
1: (sighs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So making some really, I would say, poor political choices. Turns out, if
3: you write about hollow earth ancient civilizations, you turn it into a hell of a racist. Yeah. Uh, A.K.A. also Lovecraft.
1: Who knew, yeah, uh, yeah. E- except that you can see this today everywhere. Um, but but Palmer also uh, got in with this Giannini guy talking about the uh, Hollow Earth again, this time talking about uh, Admiral Byrd and uh, the the Poles. Oh, yeah. yeah, some really weird, uh, I would say weird science, it's not even... It's, science fantasy but it's built on a sort of a hoax around the idea that uh bird had actually gone inside the hollow earth and uh, knew about it and there was a government cover-up that was a fairly interesting story because as you were saying this actually came out of uh, uh sort of a pro-nazi story yep. but i i do uh find that 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 narrative around the earth being hollow is still out there um and um Oh yeah, it's not going away. I mean, it's it's. I it's not as prevalent as the flat Earth.
3: I was saying, Remember when the flat Earth was a joke? And, yeah, yeah. Oh, no one really believes that. Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh yeah.
4: There is this. There is this concept in politics right now, and I, I'm not going to make fun of anybody's politics, despite the temptations that I have to do so. Um, that if you are anti-establishment, then you're right by default. I mean I'm as establishment as you can come. I believe in the establishment. I believe in the idea that you work your way into the establishment and then you 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 advance your agenda based on having earned a place at the table. But a lot of people believe that you know the whole idea of 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 righteousness in politics comes from the fact that you're the ultimate outsider. So anybody's who's anti-establishment by default is a hero. Maybe that's Julian Assange, maybe that's brad manning chelsea manning i don't know but the reality is is that there is this weird contingent in american and european politics that if you're anti-establishment you're automatically valid and i think you see a lot of that emerging especially in the 50s and 60s in this kind of ufology and saucerianism, where they the fact that these people have an anti-establishment voice automatically grants them legitimacy and what i'm seeing is a lot of people adopting some super effing racist beliefs uh, simply because they're they're not part of the establishment right
3: now. Oh yeah. No, I mean th- that that I, I would absolutely agree and th- and that's the turn we've taken is oh if it's if you know and again I I mentioned Michael Barkin, he wrote possibly I, in my opinion the best book on this back in 2003 or 2002 Ah, uh, culture conspiracy. where's like, yeah, it all it all gets thrown into the gutter of rejected knowledge, and once it's in there, you're you're gonna pick it up. Like, and there's you know, no this...
4: more anti-establishment belief than the idea that the world is not freaking round. I mean,
0: yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't, I can't stop laughing at, it, but it, it, the people who believe it, uh, while they may be basing that on the way that it drives other people crazy. Some of them are basing it on the fact that they have bought into this conspiracy. That, that uh, yeah. So No, I, I don't
3: yeah. – I, I, there was a time when it was, there, was, there was an ironic component. Yeah. I don't think there's much of that left. And I just want to say, and maybe this is why, again, with the shaver and – well, Palmer's really the issue. Why this kind of really hit some bad buttons with me. Yeah. I haven't laughed about any of these topics in a long no, time. No, they're not funny. Yeah. No. These topics are not funny, man. I mean, this is like we are
4: literally looking at the birth of everything that created the decadent anti-intellectual culture that we're struggling with right now.
3: Yes. This stuff's not funny. Yeah. (laughs) It's important. but And and this is sometimes where I have a a hard time with some people that do follow this, where it's like, oh, well, you know, I'll follow this because it's amusing and laugh at the people. It's like, okay, here's your fiddle. Uh, There's the city of Rome um uh it's on fire if you haven't noticed it's on fire
4: yeah yeah no i think i you you've been struggling i can tell jeb from the your, your comments with the idea that studying this stuff is not important i think that this is the exact reason why it's important if we ignore the fact that people would rather believe some convenient bullshit as opposed to reality then our Mission as teachers and educators and scientists is just completely thrown out the
3: window. Oh, I, mean, I know I know it's yeah. important. It's just I struggled for so long to be like, this is an important part of our culture. It's like, oh, it's just nuts and cranks and seeing.
1: Yeah, that that's missing the point and, completely. An, an
3: origin point that sounds like that, I guess, is just more that. But no, it's it's far bigger and it, and it's far and it's far more important. And I think that's why we have done a very long episode about this. Because it's like, isn't that just a piece of history? It's like, no, you don't get where we are today without this. Yeah, Like, this is super integral. And it's super integral for the way it turned out. Like, this is one of those moments. I'm not saying to send a Terminator back to do something to Ray Palmer. But this is one of those cases where, like, if you had paid Ray Palmer to go just write space opera, the future would have turned out quite different.
4: Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that nobody even knows who the guy is is to me especially compelling. Like we all know, you know, L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. But at the end of the day
3: He's had far less far less influence on Western.
4: Far less influential because he was such an obvious crank. Yeah. Apologies to the five Scientologists that listen to this podcast. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I doubt we have five, but that's, yeah. So, <laughs> so, but if you are listening, I hope you're Thetan free. Good luck. Satan <laughs> free, Satan free since '93. Oh my gosh. Well, guys, um, is there anything else we want to add? Because I feel like we've done a really good job of covering what's a pretty difficult topic. Um, I, I, I know I'm going to edit this a little bit. I, I but- want to underscore.
4: Uh, Blake, this is a very difficult topic because a part of me wants to just put on my party hat and, you know, drink a gallon of booze and ride through it as a romp. But then, you know, I'm glad that Jeb is here to, to anchor us in the reality that this stuff is really like this is the this is the zeitgeist we're dealing with. And it was born out of a, a poor man's inability to understand what was going on inside his head.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I will say to balance that 20 years ago, when I really started to look into this more significantly, I would have talked about Shaver. I remember this because I talked about it in classes and things of like, oh, well, it was this weird thing. And yeah, it's a little questionable because this guy probably had problems, but this other guy sort of and now I'm like, oh, fuck this. And, and it's because I, because of what has happened and, and also seeing it's, it's, it's tendrils everywhere. everywhere. So I, yeah. I get, I get that tendency. Cause you're like, he's got a dear girlfriend, not one. He finds is dear, one. That's a freaking artiodactyl that he's got mind control rays under the earth. And there's an immediate like, Oh, ha ha ha. That's funny. Look at that. You know, well, oh look, it rained on the on the Noah's Ark and it got broke. Isn't that funny? You know that that sort of thing. But yeah,
4: I mean, there's a we've kind of talked about it privately, but there's a documentary out right now that's supposedly reinventing the paranormal, and it's straight out of the Shaver Mysteries.
3: Oh yeah. I, I, and oh, yeah, I, I mean, we've we've talked about it. Let's just say that the Hellier thing it's it's yeah, come up. Okay. Uh, okay. And 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 you mentioned it earlier, and it's it's out of a lot of things. Um I don't think it's out of Yugath, actually I do, but uh we'll leave that there. Yugath is not a planet by the way, it's a it's dwarf it's dwarf planet.
4: It's a dwarf planet.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh I guess I think we covered everything. The only thing I don't see was we didn't talk about Martin Gardner and his uh sort of disc- Oh, his, with- his
3: his his uh, his dissing on 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 Palmer from seeing him in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I you know what? Palmer not- Palmer does not need anyone to physically observe him to tell you what he's about. He makes it amply obvious what he is about. Like that, that's, you know, I, I I don't, I I saw that part and I'm like, eh, whatever. I mean,
4: I I have a question to, to, I know we've been going a while, but I hope you guys don't have to work tomorrow, but why, why does it go to the Jews? I mean, you don't have to put this in the episode, but Jeb, how does it get there every fucking
3: time? Well, I'm I'm okay with actually discussing this. I at one point I would not have been able to answer that question. I really do think, as an archaeologist, there are not not everyone would agree with this, but especially an archaeologist that works with certain. I'm not gonna get into that. I am a believer in the concept of deep tradition. That sure. while there are huge changes, while there are transformations, that you can look at certain traditions and see deep echoes. Like the area where I am trained and I have done most of my archaeology, Mesoamerica. Does it go through huge changes over thousands of years? Yes. Can you see core concepts at Olmec sites? in 1100 BCE that you see in the Mexica empire in the, in the 15th century. Is it the same? No. Are there some connections? Yeah, there are. I would argue that there is a deep myth, a deep tradition that emerges. I don't know exactly when this is outside my, my abilities of a, It's clearly tied to... I mean, and there's other versions of this, but there's a specific one, a specific one that's clearly tied to medieval Christianity. Yeah. That is that there are two enemies, that there are a decadent, urban, anti-Christ enemy that starts off being identified with Jews in Europe in league With a barbarian outside enemy, which is pretty obviously the Turks and, you know, and all of that. And it starts with the pogroms against Jews in Europe in the medieval period. Then it transfers over to the Templars where they get the exact same or very similar accusations thrown at them that are thrown at Jews before that when they are thrown out of countries then about a century and a half later, witch panics, which had not happened before, but they're the exact same. Oh, they don't meet in the Sabbath. They meet in a Sabbath. It's very, very different. Um, and and then that gets thrown on to Illuminati and Masons and Catholics. And then it gets thrown on, on to Illuminati again. Uh, and then we get into the satanic panic and then we get to Pizzagate and QAnon.
4: Right, exactly.
3: So I think it's, I don't think it's, it's not one of these reinvent things. I, 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 th- I think there's an element of that. I used to like, when I started looking at witch trials, I'm like, oh, I, it's what I call the crucible model. Well, when you get in a certain kind of circumstance, these ideas like reinvent. It's like the circumstances make them more palatable to more people, make them more possible to be in the mainstream. The idea is centuries old. So right. I think I think that's why Same. I think I think these ideas are much older and they get transformed, but the reason they're successful is that they're digging into a thing that's already there. The
4: enemy has a certain set of characteristics that um, translate over to the person who seeks to persecute the enemy and the the hegemon has to make itself into a victim. Like, I believe that's the case. The hegemon, the in this case, the white American male has to be a victim in order to engage in persecution. And that's a pattern that has existed as long as humanity has been around.
3: Yeah, I don't I, know, I don't know if it's as long as humanity. because I, I don't know about that. I, it might be. I would say, however, the fact that you have a persecution, narrative that goes back to the roman empire sure of course for for the abrahamic tradition i think does actually play into that i think it's actually quite important there whereas i can look at you know say pharaonic egypt they don't feel that way they're like no everything's yeah there's awful chaos monsters out there but society is pretty solid well uh, unless you're the hicksaws or akhenaten sure yeah but those are but those are weird periods but but that's but that's the thing. Whereas you get to everything that comes after the Romans and the encounter with the Abrahamic religions. I agree with that. And yeah. and that is a very strong narrative in that tradition. And so I, I'm a believer in deep traditions that yeah, the the they're because you're like, why on earth are the protocols of the Elder of Zion showing up in friggin' behold a pale horse? But the fact that these are all basically just the same myth being retold and retold and retold.
4: I actually, I, w- I want to highlight that. I, I don't know if Jeff, if uh, Blake's going to put this in the show, but behold, a pale horse is the ultimate puffed Bible. Mm. Everything is in there. Oh yeah. It's all in there, it's a hundred percent, the entirety of, of the paranormal linked with conspiracy theory into one single document
3: and it has never been out of print and it has never done poorly
4: it's not a bad book it's not a bad read
3: yeah you know bill bill cooper long beyond the grave has has you know he's he's one of those prophets i i would argue that he's not quite keel but he's one of those prophets that well he's not only a prophet he's a martyr
1: yeah well there you go uh yeah if you're not going to pay your taxes and you're going to get shot by the government what better way to prove
3: your point Make sure you do it right around 2001, too. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Bill Cooper annoys me. Uh, although, I think you've, you've fairly well convinced me that my first UFO documentation that I saw in the wild outside of a UFO book was probably... Behold the, Behold the Pale Horse. Well, it was probably the Cooper uh, documents around that with the alien types right. and stuff. Yeah, So yeah. Uh, yeah, it was very peculiar. I well, feel- this
3: actually turned out more um, coherent than I was expecting, I think.
1: Good, good. I I like this. I mean, uh, I was going to add one more thing about the anti-Semitism stuff. I mean, um, Palmer was working for years with Shaver doing stories where there's secret influence, there's secret controllers. And then Mm -hmm. in his life, uh, for years, he's working for... Ziff Davis oh yeah uh, so he's uh, not able to do all the things he wants to do because uh, the people who were in charge are Jewish and right. and not letting him do what he wants to do and whether he consciously resented that or not it would be an easy step
2: well so, yeah. exactly
1: yeah
4: I, I yeah, I'm glad you brought that up in the West secret masters are always Jews like yeah. that's just part of the tradition and I think in this case it was very concretized. I mean, you know, God, like that's just the way we interpret it. And it's it's regardless of politics, the left and the right in America in 2019 have the same problem with uh, with Jews as uh, as they ever had.
3: Well, and 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 the beauty of it is is that because it's it's this very specific like. Urban elite idea it's like well, yeah most of them are but Well that one's not but he, he's like them, You know you know this 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 the, the coast you know the coastal Elite the uh, yeah. you know No and, and I don't even think that's a code At this point I think it's more just Being generous with numbers If 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 that makes If that makes sense no, I mean, but that, no perfect. I think it's A historical myth I I, I Really think that I, I wrestled that for a Long time like why does it always go back There and, and I it think is, it's ultimately these ideas are a lot more powerful on us than we think it they are. is
4: integrated into the DNA of Western politics at this yeah point. it's yeah. at the, it's at the fundamental level,
3: yeah, I mean, it literally goes back to the medieval period at least, yeah, yeah. so the real monster was
4: man all along,
1: yeah, monster dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and you just heard part two of our coverage of the Shaver Mysteries with Drs. Jerry, Drake, and Jeb Card. There are a lot of links in the show notes if you want to dive deeper into the Hollow Earth and the Shaver Mysteries. I've received a lot of interesting links to a variety of fictional properties that directly or indirectly build on this mythology. I didn't try to include them all in the show notes, but there are plenty of them, and the numbers growing. When the Hollow Earth material showed up in the Godzilla, King of the Monsters movie... I was the only one in the theater cackling madly. I may have spent too much time on this topic for my own good health. But I hope that you all enjoyed the fruits of this effort. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Though I really do recommend checking out Dan Loxton's two-part Hollow Earth coverage from Junior Skeptic. Links to that are in the show notes from part one. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. No daros or taros were harmed in the making of this episode.
0: Hungry For more skepticism, want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today.
1: That could split these folks into fashion. People into factions should not... Su- su- uh, <clears throat> that would split folks into factions. In a world where people... Non-canonical fanfics... Fiction. Uh, because I really should not even be saying this. You know, honestly, I, I'm just having trouble here. And probably was responsible for much of the theist to the tech jargon that was, uh, that was common to his competitive... Ugh. Blavatsky. Ahem. <clears throat> we already covered not the... Blah. Blah. It's in fantasy.